We're now listening to the Real Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Real Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am Ray. And we're excited to be back. Uh, We had a lot of fun last week talking about our favorite summer horror movies. Ray, I felt like you gave some really good recommendations and got me excited to rewatch some movies again here really soon. I had the the same reaction. In fact, I ended up watching one of them from your list just before we got on the call, so I'm really excited to have a few more to check out as well. That is so awesome. And we really appreciate all of you for listening. And it means a lot to Ray and I that any of you out there take your time to listen to our opinions, listen to us have our conversation. And so Ray made a little post on Instagram about it. And we were kind of overwhelmed with the people who shared it and who gave us nice comments. And so Ray, I'm going to pass it over to you so that you can uh, give a special thanks to those people who uh, reached out. Yeah. Um, so I made a post asking um, some of the people that have been interacting with us if they wouldn't mind sharing our podcast with their friends and their families and their enemies, if they will. So I got a, a list here of people that did that. And I just want to give every single one of them a shout out. If you hear their names and their handle, go give them a follow. Go talk to them because they're all awesome people. Our friend Taylor, and she actually shared it on both of her profiles, which was pretty awesome. But her main profile is Dotievsky underscore space underscore cadet also brady lost in gratitude travis at nightwalker 22 ryan at rymo.vinyl scott at vinyl by scott dennis at utah vinyl etc jay a drunk intellectual and the man the myth and the legend chris at chicken and vinyl forever all of you thank you so much for sharing and for enjoying what we're doing and for being just so encouraging and so lovely to the both of us. I also wanted to make mention of a couple of people that are non-Instagram or or non-social media people that have also been sharing. Those people are my brother Jerry. He's always telling his co-workers and as always he's doing some awesome artwork for us. My cousin Fatima, she was kind enough to give us our first five, five-star rating, which was so kind of her. My old co-worker and friend David Sturm, who is always reaching out, giving me encouragement and sharing with other people as well. So thank you all so much for sharing. It really means the world to me and I know it means the world to Ray that you guys take an hour out of your day or split it up through the week to listen to what we have to say. And we're looking forward to bringing you a lot more new and exciting content because, Ray, I don't know about you, but this is really, I do YouTube and it's fun for me on YouTube to post these videos and see these interactions and have this experience as myself. But to have every week this thing where I get to come on here with you, have this long conversation and share in something I love so much with someone else who shares that passion equally, it means a lot to me. I've always enjoyed having these conversations with people. We're having fun and that's why we keep doing it. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of this is to have fun. And like I said before, and Ray and I have said this a million times, please, despite us asking for you to share with your friends and family, like reach out to us, tell us if you have topics you want us to talk about, tell us if there's movies you want us to talk about, because at the end of the day, we're here to obviously have fun together and have these conversations, but we're also here to bring you guys a form of entertainment that you can engage in. So please, if you have a topic or a subject, Ray and I are very open to discussing different things and bringing forth content 
that you as the listener are going to enjoy. Yes, please reach out to us. We are by no means rock stars or anything like that. We're really eager to reply to your comments and to your questions, to whatever you want. Even if you just want to, you know, send us a message and say hi and hey, just I recommend this movie. I recommend this topic. We are so excited because we come up with these ideas and we try to plan them out. But in all reality, it would be kind of fun to have like a, an episode on an idea that you came up with that someone else came up with because it throws us in a situation that we probably wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So please, yeah, engage with us. We are more than happy to engage back and hear what you have to say. Once again, thank you all so much and we really appreciate it. And that, Ray, leads me into talking about an article I found today, which apparently A24 announced this week that they're going to be making a film about a uh, dynasty of wrestlers who had a huge influence on the sport since the 1960s, and it's going to star Zac Efron, and it's an A24 produced film. And the reason why I bring this up is less to discuss that film in general, but more just to kind of geek out about A24. I know we've talked about A24 recently. I just started a segment on my YouTube channel where I'm going to literally watch every A24 movie, which is kind of daunting. really love this company, and reading the plot description of this film that about this dynasty of wrestlers and, and such a unique subject matter... I really think the thing I appreciate the most with A24 is that they give their money to these people who have really unique ideas and who bring forth something so exciting to the table as far as like, hey, this isn't going to be your standard run-of-the-mill thing that you're used to going to see. Something that I've always enjoyed about A24 is the fact that there's no shortage of ideas with them. And the same year that you can watch a movie... Like everything, everywhere, all at once. You can watch a movie like Men. Twenty Four may be just a a household name now that people recognize, but just because you see the A Twenty Four logo does not mean you're gonna get the same type of movie. They're always gonna be different. I mean, just to think of a movie like Lamb versus a movie like Midsummer. Like you may think they're from the same vein, but they couldn't be more different. Yeah, like you can have a beautiful uh, film like Minari about this family who's struggling so heavily to have a farm in the United States in a time where racism against Asian people was so high and moving into the South. And then you can have a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once where people are fighting to jump on a butt plug. (laughs) (laughs) I guess to, to sum that up, in total, uh, I just think it, it's great seeing companies like A24, like you said, Ray, they're becoming more of a household name now, which is great because to me as someone who is a big film lover, who obviously I, I love big budget movies like the Marvel films and things that come out from Disney, but seeing a company like A24 who gives these people the ability to make movies they want getting so successful and then seeing other companies blossom like Neon, who Neon's movies now are just to the quality of A24 and they're getting just as big. And so I'm hopeful that this this renaissance almost of these smaller production companies will continue to blossom so that we'll never run out of great films coming from independent filmmakers. It almost feels like movies like A24 and Neon. It's almost like if I see a logo from either one of those companies, I'm I'm there. I'll I'll go watch it just because if anything else, I'm going to be watching something unique. I'm always excited to support. I always want to support unique 
storytelling. Like I, like I said in many episodes before, even if it's not my thing, I rather more points of views and more unique stories being told than just having another formulaic Fast and the Furious. No offense if you enjoy those movies, but it's also it's also nice to have the variety of other type of content. I'm excited for A24 to continue doing what they're doing and then seeing companies like Neon and even other smaller companies like Film 4 jump in and get in the game because we need more, more content like this for sure. There's a lot of production companies that are giving these filmmakers those platforms. And Ray, I know you mentioned them making some of your favorite movies of the year, which I think is a perfect transition into talking about our episode topic today, which is Ray and I are going to discuss our top five films of the year so far. So we're hitting about the midway point of the year. There's been a lot of movies released. Ray and I obviously have not seen everything that's come out this year because that would be impossible. Between me watching films for episodes we're making, the amount of movies I watch for my YouTube channel, it would be impossible for us to see every single movie that comes out during the year. But from what we have seen, we're going to talk about our five favorite movies of the year so far. Number five pick is going to be Matt Reeves' The Batman. What's funny, uh, this movie almost made my top five. It was edged out by, I think, two other films. For for being a DC film that telling a new story about Batman, this is actually my favorite rendition of Batman, and I like that they took the direction of kind of disconnecting it from the whole DC universe and that it's its, its own thing. I also love that it was an actual, like, I somebody I heard somebody compare it to basically seven, but with Batman in it. I love the character of Batman. I also love that it's an actual Batman movie. I think we get Bruce Wayne for maybe like 20 minutes of a three hour runtime. And I love that it was a very Batman focused film. And you get to see him be investigate. You get to see him be up there figuring the crimes. But also something I love about Batman, and this is an issue I've had with previous Batmans, even the things that we know about the Batman, I always had a suspended belief to think that this kid that lost his parents and that went through a really traumatic experience is this like well-adjusted playboy billionaire. I feel like Robert, Robert Pattinson gave this performance of someone who's actually damaged, someone who's actually traumatized, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, to be honest. They just have a lot of money and all these fancy gadgets and they're still trying to figure out how to do it. And that feels more realistic to me i feel like this was a true like film noir almost where they actually painted batman as a detective which in the comic books he was he was incredibly intelligent and in most of the movies I feel like, you know, everybody, when we talk about Batman, they talk about the Christopher Nolan films, which the Christopher Nolan films are good movies with Batman in them, but I don't think that they're good Batman movies. Like, they have great villains, and they have great atmosphere and world, but they don't spend a lot of time getting into the psyche of Christian Bale's character, compared to this movie, where I feel like they really are diving into the subject of who Batman is, and I love what you said, like, the fact that he's this recluse who doesn't want to be around anyone because he doesn't trust anyone i mean his family was killed his dad was seemingly this amazing philanthropist who was doing so much for the community and they were just killed out of nowhere and he's like why would he want to go out and be this big presence in the city that he feel he can't trust anyone and also you mentioned the the nolan movies having good villains but this one that riddler is actually scary he's actually a scary villain 
and you know, I, I enjoyed Jim Carrey as the Riddler. He was fun. I was more of a silly character. This one, the Riddler in this movie, feels like a domestic terrorist that you would read about in the news. Every, whether it be Marvel or DC or any superhero film recently, feels like they have to shoehorn multiple villains in. And what I like is, despite the fact that Catwoman and the Penguin are in this film, they don't shy away from the fact that the Riddler is the main villain, and they're just, like, there to carry the plot along and to make this this world feel so immersive. Like, so many comic book movies forget that, like, you know, when you look at Spider-Man, despite the fact that Spider-Man might be fighting Doc Ock in a movie, all these other villains still exist in this world. And I like that Matt Reeves submitted, like, hey, just because this is a Riddler movie doesn't mean that these other people don't exist in this reality. And I would argue that the usage of Catwoman and the Penguin are better for the world. It helps that world feels lived in. And, you know, I would argue that the Penguin's character, he's definitely a tragic character. And that's something that I enjoyed about the incredible performance of Colin Farrell as the Penguin. Be able to, you you almost feel sympathetic for the guy, even though he is a scumbag and even though he is part of this underground mob going on you kind of can't help but feel bad for him at moments his performance was transformative like if you would not have told me that was colin farrell before the movie started i it, he's unrecognizable he, he really is and i i loved his performance in it and i thought one of the most tense scenes in the movie was that car chase scene between him and Robert Pattinson. I thought it was so well done. Yeah, that car scene was incredible. And I also, I know some people have voiced some, I wouldn't say complaints, but just disdain for the for the new Batmobile. But I love that even the Batmobile feels like it's not completed. Like, yes, that the was Batman amazing. is still trying, he's still trying to figure out how this tank basically is going to be. So I love that the car almost feels like incomplete. Like it's still not, it's, full-fledged form. It's not like um like Christian Bale on the Nolan movies where he looks at Lucius and goes, does it come in black? Oh, God, yeah. I, the other thing I liked about it too, Ray, and I'm sure you appreciated this as well, was that opening sequence where it was showing multiple crimes occurring in Gotham at the same time and giving you this idea of like, hey, despite Batman being a superhero, he's just one guy and he can't be everywhere at once. And like... Yeah, it shows him stopping a crime, but he wasn't able to stop everything that was happening at the same time. The thing that this is the one, the one and only thing that cracked me up about the Batman. Um, <laughs> you hear him narrating, you know, kind of doing the narration of what's happening with his like really gruff voice. Every time I hear that those narrations, I can't help but laugh. Because are you familiar with Community? Yes. That, that episode when Abed dresses up as Batman and he's just narrating his story. He's like, I'm out there in the night. And he's just like narrating with this really great... I just can't help but to think of Abed narrating himself as Batman every time I watch this movie. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the score. I really like this rendition of the score. I like the Batman theme in this movie. I think that it fits Robert Pattinson's character really well. I actually saw on the special features for the Blu-ray, because the Blu-ray just came out recently, that Matt Reeves said that they had the the Batman theme playing. Michael Giacchino had composed it already. And they played it while Robert Pattinson was putting on the Batman makeup. And Matt Reeves went, this is going to be on the movie. And then they were like, well, sir, this is just like a test shot. It's like, no, no, no. 
this is going to be in the movie. And I'm so glad they kept it. And I do want to say, and I know, Ray, we mentioned this in a previous episode. It's a three-hour runtime, but it's a brisk three hours. I was so immersed into this world, and it felt like every scene was so purposeful that I didn't care how long the movie was. I, I wanted to stay in this world as long as possible. And one, one last thing I'll add. Um, when they released, I don't know if you saw the deleted scene that they released. So I was really nervous when they said, oh, the Joker's incorporated. I was like, stop it, stop it with the Joker. We, we had plenty of Joker right now. But that scene, the fact that Batman is using the Joker almost to help him solve crimes, I was like, okay, I can actually see the usage, inclusion of a Joker like this. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that the way they approached it, it didn't feel so like ham fisted as like, we're just going to shove the Joker in here. He feels like a part of the world. And I'm excited for that because I do feel like previously Batman has relied way too heavily on the Joker to kind of save every franchise, which like I get, he's the most interesting villain. He's the one that everybody wants to see, but there are also other great villains in the Batman universe that just haven't been explored as, as much but I'm hoping that they approach Joker in a different way that doesn't just feel like the same recycled thing. And from that deleted scene, I would say it does feel a lot different. Well, that was a great fifth pick, Ray. And like I said, it barely like fell off my list. On that note, what is your fifth pick? Yeah, so my fifth pick is actually a movie that I watched like a week ago. And it's a movie that was 100% my cup of tea. And that movie was Duel, directed by Riley Stearns. Have you heard about this movie? I haven't even heard of it, no. Yeah, so Duel stars Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul. And what the movie is about is it takes place in this weird kind of like trying to feel like our reality but not 100% like our world where you live in this world where if you start to die and you realize that you're going to die that you can have yourself cloned and when you have yourself cloned you can live with your clone until you die to teach it about how you live and how you operate so that it can literally take your spot for you so your family doesn't have to grieve. That sounds fascinating. Karen Gillan gets diagnosed with a terminal illness and the doctor says hey you're barely gonna have any time left to live but you have this option to get yourself cloned and she's a little hesitant at first and she doesn't 100% know whether she wants to do it but she finally comes to terms with the bo her boyfriend that she lives with and her mom will be left alone so she decides hey I'm gonna do it well she gets herself cloned and she starts teaching her clone how her life works and what this movie is other than this really interesting subject is it's almost a Yorgos Lanthimos-esque dark comedy so there's a lot of like all the lines are delivered really deadpan and bleak and it makes it so funny to watch because like it's so absurd so she starts to teach this clone about her life well the clone is almost like making personal jabs at her all the time and kind of structuring her personality to where it's completely different than her own and so you jump forward 10 months ahead of time while Karen Gillan goes to the doctor's office and the doctor says hey we have no idea how this happened but you're completely cured you, you have no illness so you need to get your clone decommissioned because there's a law in this environment that says you're not allowed to have two of the same people walking around have to get it decommissioned so when she goes to get it decommissioned she finds that her clone has filed a lawsuit against her to where they are going to in a year and this is required by the government have a duel to the death and whoever survives the duel to the death gets to continue to live the life 
I need to watch this. This sounds fascinating. I, I just pulled it up right now as we were talking about it. It is hilarious. It's like, can't remember, Ray, have you seen any of Yorgos Lanthimos films like Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Lobster or any of those movies? No, we talked about those um, once upon a time, but I haven't, no. Yeah, so his movies, one of the things I love about them is... His movies are so much about creating these like very weird abstract environments amidst our like real world and all of his actors deliver lines incredibly deadpan and bland and it makes it so much funnier. So like at the beginning of the film when the doctor is like telling her about her diagnosis, she's so nonchalant about it and just acts like she doesn't care to where it has this almost hyper elevated sense of comedy and there's so many amazing punchlines in this movie that are like it, it's almost a disservice for me to try to perform it over the podcast because it's just so hilarious. But pretty much the big part of the movie is she starts to go broke because she has to pay money to her clone. Like, it's a part of this thing. And so she has to get trained on how to fight in this duel. And she hires Aaron Paul, who is, like, the cheapest person that will teach her how to fight. And their chemistry together is so hilarious. There's so many truly remarkably funny moments. It's very violent. Uh, Riley Stearns also directed a film, Ray, that I don't know if you've seen. Jesse Eisenberg called The Art of Self-Defense. No, I haven't. I know what movie that is, but no, I haven't seen it. It was another really incredible like deadpan comedy with a lot of really great themes and this movie isn't just like a ridiculous comedy it's also like a lot about identity and finding yourself and also how you spend your time before you die and like seeing that every moment of your life is precious and that it means something and pursuing the things that you care about and so there's a lot of really great themes at play and it's also this really dark comedy that made me laugh until I cried at multiple moments and Karen Gillan gives just a phenomenal performance in this as most of you know her from the Guardians of the Galaxy series as Nebula or from Doctor Who if you're a Doctor Who fan but she is fantastic in it Aaron Paul's great and I don't want to talk much more about plot points because this is one of those movies that it's just a lot more fun if you just go in blind but yeah that's number five on my list is Duel uh, go watch it it's ridiculous. I, I'm i going to have to. That sounds fascinating. That actually sounds really fascinating. It's a really great movie, and I'm disappointed that it didn't do better in the box office because Riley Stearns has made two movies now, and both of his movies have been really fascinating and amazing, and they're content that like I want to see in a movie. And so I'm hopeful that like it seems to be doing a lot better on streaming and that more people are watching it. So I'm hopeful that it does a lot better, and I'm hoping that people really like it so that uh, Riley can continue to make more movies like this. But yeah, I'm excited to hear your number four pick, Ray. Lay it on me. My number four pick is actually, um, this is kind of out of the norm for me, but it's actually a documentary. The documentary is called Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I am a huge Tony Hawk fan. I'm excited. I haven't seen it, so I'm, I'll be excited to hear you talk about it. So it's on HBO Max right now. Basically, it's a documentary about the life of the skateboard legend Tony Hawk. I remember when I, just as a little background, when I came to the United States from, from El Salvador, I didn't know the language. I didn't know how to talk to other people because, you know, the language barrier. So my best friend became a skateboard for a long time. I would just go to the park and skate. And so skateboarding became a really important thing. I never got good at it. I think I 
learn how to kickflip. That's as far as I made it. It became an important thing in my life to be able to to skate. So naturally, I started following you know the video games and all the skaters. Rodney Mullen is my favorite skater of all time. So being able to watch this unfiltered version of his life was so profound. Being able to see the things that Tony Hawk went through. Um, how he was an outcast. People would actually, when he was starting out, they would boo him. They would tell him to go to go back, that he wasn't good enough to be part of the culture. Everybody sees Tony Hawk as this very like nice and thoughtful guy, but he had a really hard upbringing. You know, a lot of people think rich privilege is evil and all, but you know, a 16 year old shouldn't have make as much money as he was making to be able to buy his own house while he was still in high school just having all of these these things handed to him when he was a young kid while he was being basically emotionally berated at every competition he went to and just being able to see his life through that lens and hear other people like Stacy Peralta which is one of my all-time skating heroes or, you know, Rodney Mullen, Steve Cavallaro, all of these people talking about Tony and what an influence he's been. And also seeing how Tony still struggles with some things to this day, even though he was able to be a pundit for the Olympic Games last year. And just, I admire Tony Hawk and being able to watch this documentary about him. Because it's not just a documentary about skateboarding. It's about his life and the things that he's gone through and the things that he struggles with even to this day. It's it's incredible because skate skateboarding. Even though I'm nowhere near as good as I was, and I wasn't even good to begin with, now it's a miracle if I don't fall off the board. It was really near and dear to my heart to be able to watch that and see how he changed the the scene, but also how skateboarding changed his life and the things that he's been able to accomplish through something that for a lot of us was just a quick pastime hobby. That's awesome. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I like you, but you're, you are probably way better than me. My brother and I, I, I have two brothers. I have a brother who's a year younger than me, Luke, who we shared a bedroom our whole lives. So we are our young adult lives. We were so close and we became obsessed with skateboarding after, uh, Tony Hawk's pro skater came out. I remember between the pro skater games and Tony Hawk's underground, we were like so obsessed in that world and we tried to skateboard and we sucked so bad, but I just became fascinated fascinated with Tony Hawk's life and like he's it's like you said it makes me want to watch it so much more because uh, everything I see about Tony Hawk he seems just like the most wonderful human being who like uses his platform and the money that he gets to like do good things for the community and so to hear that he was like so bullied and treated so poorly so long is really fascinating I'm looking forward to checking this out Ray this is something I never would have watched otherwise if I wouldn't have even have known about it I'm gonna watch this now this this sounds like something that's right up my alley so that's my number four pick what is your number four so comically enough, Ray, my number four pick is the movie that you just watched, Ty West's X. <laughs> I mentioned this in last week's Summer Horror Movies episode, so if you listen to that, I'm not going to go into like grave, grave detail about it since I talked about it in length on that episode. But essentially you have this group of kids who go and rent this like house that's out, or it's like a guest house outside of this old couple's home in the middle of Texas, in the middle of that heat. And they're going to film a porno and crazy shit starts happening to them. And it's just a really wild experience that I'm a huge fan of horror and a huge fan of the slasher genre. And I know a lot of slasher films are really campy and terrible. But what I like is 
the unique interpretations of slasher films. And I feel like what Ty West did so well is he took what makes so many great 80 slasher movies great but added his own unique like independent horror lens through it where he spends so much time building up each individual characters and building up the villains of the film to where there's periods of time that you almost feel empathy for them even though that what they're doing isn't good and it's really an interesting dichotomy that's created and it's just one of the most unique viewing experiences of the year and ray i'm really interested to hear your opinion since you just watched it something that i really liked and this is actually something i did not mention off the podcast or while we were texting i know i mentioned that i really like the cinematography but i really like the way how it was edited like some scenes they're using this like certain scenes from the film that they're shooting to kind of lead the story along so there's that great scene where i believe it's kid cuddy yeah he knocks on the door and he's like kind of doing this flirtatious just awful like acting with this woman as he comes into the house it cuts to mia god's character going into the house and as she's like oh we better hurry before my dad gets home it cuts to mia goth like talking to the old woman and the old woman's like better leave my husband's home so it's like the way how they're cutting back and forth between the scenes it just feels jarring at times which i think that's what what he was trying to go for for a unsettling look at at those types of, of films because it does feel like an homage to films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just very gritty, very gross. You can almost feel yourself sweating along with them in the environment that they're in. I really enjoy the, obviously I enjoy the horror aspect of it, the scares. We talked a lot about that on the previous episode, so I wanted to focus more on like the technical aspects of this movie, the way it looks, the way it feels, the way it's edited together. Um, <laughs> I love the great moment that he says, and I thought this was so meta, where... Um, he's like, you know, you like Psycho. Psycho is your favorite. You love that movie. He's like, yeah, but that's a horror movie. I'm not making one of those movies. But you're watching a horror movie. Moments like that are very tongue-in-cheek and super enjoyable. That's like uh, at, at the beginning of the movie when the cops are uh, at the house and they get the camera. And he's like, what do you think's going to be on that? <laughs> so, uh, uh, he's like uh, some fucked up horror picture and I was like oh man this is so good but that's like you know one of the things I appreciated about it too and you want to talk about the technical elements is one of the things as simple as this might seem when you think of any of the classic horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre Nightmare on Elm Street uh, the even the Friday the 13th films so many of these characters have these like really iconic looks that everyone remembers. And I feel like I always remember like the Sally Hardesty outfit from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I really feel like that like overalls look that he gave Mia Goth is like such a unique, memorable outfit like where each one of these characters are so have like such unique and developed personalities that I feel like even if this movie didn't do super well in the box office, which if I remember right, it did do pretty decent. I, I feel like it it's going to have that like iconic feel that a lot of those original slashers have for a new generation. Yeah, it's going to eventually stack up with those films for sure. Uh, I'm wondering how this movie is going to age. Because I, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being such a groundbreaking film and now it's considered a classic and i wonder if you know 20 30 years from now a movie like x is going to stuck up along with 
the Texas Chainsaw Massacres of the world. I hope so, because I feel like what it does is that it, it uses that formula, but does so in like a very subversive and unique way. Something that I also liked, because I didn't expect this going in, the whole like aspect, the whole sexual aspect of the movie is not glorified. Like I thought it was going to be like this raunchy, you know, hour of just boobs, but no, it just, it never actually glorifies it. Like, yeah, you get some, some moments, but the movie is never actually being glorifying. You actually hear the perspective of, uh, of one of the characters who's kind, who's uncomfortable with what's happening and then it's just the different perspectives of it. It's not just like this strictly like raunchy movie with a bunch of kills. It's actually taking its time to to talk about the subject matter and it's not glorifying it. It's just giving different perspectives and letting the viewer make up their mind on that. And I do like that it almost humanizes sex work in a way that a lot of films don't. Where like the perspective that is given from the lead characters as to why they pursue this line of work is very much told like you said it's told from a perspective that really neutralizes it for the viewer and i like that uh i like jenna ortega's character and like her push and pull between whether or not she wants to do it and be involved with it and it really creates an interesting dichotomy for the viewer but i like that especially in this time period where i feel like you know we live in an environment now where sex work is much more accepted it's much it's not looked upon and demonized as much but to view it through like this lens of like the 1970s and looking at it in a time period where i guarantee you like most of conservative america would look at a person in the sex work industry and be like ooh you're gross ooh you're nasty and like seeing it from the perspective of these people who are just doing it because it's a passion and that's what they want to do i i really liked that look at it and I thought that it was really fascinating. Yeah, it, it was good. I liked it. I can't. I can't deny that I. I, I enjoy the movie. I, I like what it did. And like I said, it looked great. Chelsea Wolf did a great work collaborating on the score too. So that's those are my thoughts. I'm, I have more thoughts on that, but then then we would enter spoil ter- spoilers territory. Exactly. Just go watch X and enjoy it. So Ray, hit me with that number three spot. I'm ready. This movie is a movie that I knew I was going to like, and I know it's not breaking any new ground, but I can't help but love and just be enamored with the works of Mr. Nicolas Cage. So my number three pick is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I knew. (laughs) It's funny. I knew this was going to end up on your list somewhere, and it's actually, I have it right now at my house uh for streaming and i haven't watched it yet but it's on my list to watch this weekend so i'm looking forward to being able to talk about it with you at length but go ahead and uh give a little background to it for the people who might not know what it is about if you're detached from culture and reality (laughs) this movie is so damn funny so the 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 movie is basically like a satirized version of nick cage the actor he in the movie he's a washed up actor he is you know bottoming out no one cares anymore and he gets the opportunity to go to basically go to get paid a million dollars to go make an appearance at this birthday party for this guy who seems like he could be a really good dude but then there's a whole thing that he might actually be a some drug kingpin Played by Pedro Pascal, which, by the way, I'm just going to say this right now. I love Nick Cage. 
Nick Cage is one of my favorites. Pedro Pascal in this movie is so good. And the chemistry that he has with Nick Cage is so awesome. It's the bromance of, of the century for sure. It's so funny. They're both hilarious. Obviously, you get all of the references to Nick Cage's back catalog. And, you know, it plays like a an action comedy movie. So, like I said, it's not breaking any ground as far as the story or the content goes. But if you're a Nick Cage fan, or if you enjoy hilarious, laugh-out-loud action comedies, do yourself a favor. It's coming out on Blu-ray this weekend, so I'm going to be picking it up. But go watch this movie. It is so funny, and I can't wait for this movie to be heavy on my rotation to watch for years and years to come. I heard uh, I heard that they do a name drop for Mandy a couple times, and I'm pretty happy about that. They do. They do name drops for so many movies. What I love about it, too, was something that... Uh, it's not being mentioned enough about this movie is the passion for filmmaking because Nick Cage's character is passionate about filmmaking and we all know he is in real life but in this movie he there's this emphasis he legitimately wants to make these like great beautiful stories and just these deep passionate stories and he connects with Pedro Pascal's character through film because Pedro Pascal is also someone who enjoys films and enjoys, you know, the aspect and the art of filmmaking that he wants to make a movie himself. So, like, that relationship based on the love of filmmaking and the love of of the craft, it's something that hits home for me because it's the whole reason why we started this podcast. So we had an outlet to talk about our passion for filmmaking. So it was actually pretty relatable to me watching that movie. And now that we do, it just kind of takes it to a whole nother height for me. That makes me even more excited to see it. Uh, I don't know anything about it other than watching the trailer. And I also have an undying love for Nicolas Cage, which really cemented from early in my youth. I've always like found, even when he's like in movies that aren't the greatest, that I can be just enamored with how dedicated he is to his performance. My favorite Nick Cage performance is still his performance in Wild at Heart, the David Lynch film, which is like one of the most wild performances I've ever seen. But yeah, he's a character that I really love and I'm very excited to watch this movie and I'm glad that it ended up on your list. It makes me even more excited to see it. Awesome. So on that note, what is your number three pick? Yeah, so my number three pick is a uh, little independent film that was released from a company called Annapurna Pictures, which I don't think we talked about, uh, who also releases a lot of really great content. Um, but this movie is from a first-time director. His name's Jared Carmichael, and the movie I'm going to be talking about today is On the Count of Three, which I believe I mentioned to you in one of our earliest podcasts, Ray. You're not the first person either that has mentioned this movie. Yeah, so this movie... Uh, the it it would have with the other two films on my list being just like in my opinion masterpieces if this was any other year this probably would have been closer to like number one or number two for me but this was a movie that being someone who struggles really heavily with mental health issues uh, I deal pretty heavily with depression and anxiety I'm medicated for it and go through a lot of uh, difficulties with those issues uh, it was a movie that really hit me very hard in a way that I feel like there's so many filmmakers 
filmmakers out there who try to tell stories about mental health problems and that don't tell them through a lens that feels very realistic and very grounded. And this movie was brilliant. Uh, I don't really have another way to describe it, but just to give a brief plot synopsis, the movie stars the, the first-time director Jared Carmichael and Christopher Abbott, who I don't know if you're as big of a fan as me, Ray, but I love Christopher Abbott, and I feel like everything he shows up in now, he steals the show. Christopher Abbott. That does sound so familiar. He's the lead guy in Possessor. Oh. He wasn't also here in It Comes at Night? It Comes at Night as well. Yep, I was just about to mention that. Uh, I He's just... He was in another movie I really love called Martha Marcy May Marlene with... Uh, um, Elizabeth Olsen, but he's a very talented actor. And what the movie is about is Jared Carmichael is living alone. He has a girlfriend who he got pregnant and the two of them aren't really close. They kind of have this detached relationship and he's working at a, it's like a place where he's like sorting mulch and his boss takes him in and tells him that he wants to give him a promotion, but he's just so miserable. And you can tell that like his life just feels terrible and he doesn't feel like he belongs. And then you have Christopher Abbott's character who is actually currently institutionalized and uh, he's in this mental hospital and he tried to kill himself. And in the first five minutes of the movie, Jared Carmichael's character tries to hang himself in the bathroom at his work. One of his co-workers walks in on him and he stops. And the movie has Jared Carmichael go to the hospital that Christopher Abbott's at. And you find out that the two of them lived in group homes together. Jared Carmichael's dad is played by J.B. Smoove. He's kind of this like seedy asshole who abandoned him when he was young. Christopher Abbott's parents, you get kind of a little bit of a backstory into what happened with them but he was in group homes for a while and something really horribly tragic happened to Christopher Abbott's character which I don't want to get into because of spoilers but what the movie is about is the two of them decide that they're going to commit suicide at the same time and that they're going to shoot each other before they do kill each other they decide they want to have one last day together as friends and get some unfinished business taken care of and the movie as dark of a subject matter as that sounds and as tough as and difficult as it sounds like it is to watch it's also incredibly funny and it's very heartfelt and beautiful and it's about these two friends who would do literally anything in the world to build each other up and to try to make their lives better despite all of these horrible things that are occurring on the surface and there are so many amazing scenes Ray just to give you an example of some of the the humor Jared Carmichael is constantly insulting Christopher Abbott's music taste and when they get in the car together he starts cranking Papa Roach's last resort on his iPod and Jared Carmichael looks over at him and he goes dude I'm not fucking listening to last resort on the day I kill myself there's a lot of comedic levity put into a movie that's super heavy subject matter wise but you get into like Christopher Abbott's mindset of he was in group homes and he was put at these places with therapy that literally had medicated him on every medication imaginable and that told him like, dude, we don't know what the solution is to make you better anymore. And then Jared Carmichael being told by all of his friends and family like that his life isn't important and that he doesn't really matter. And it's something that resonated so heavy with me and that I just thought was so beautiful. And it truly is one of the most remarkable films of the year that it was able to be accomplished on such a small budget. And it, it, Ray, I, I will tell you of this whole list, I know that we're probably about to have a lot of crossover, but this is a movie that 
of the whole podcast of things I've recommended to you. I really want you to see it because it's very moving and beautiful. And as someone who's talked to me very about mental health issues before, I know that it's something that will move you quite a bit. It's really fascinating to me that some of these darker, more, I guess, uh, sensitive subjects are told through the lens of humor so often. Just as a quick little side note, I don't know if you ever watched the movie Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. It was beautiful, but it uses a lot of dark humor to tell the story. And just what I, the point I'm making is I just, I think it's interesting how these very, like, strong, sensitive, almost dark subject matter movies are told so often through the lens of of comedy. I just think that's really fascinating. Well, I think it's too in part to like, if you can't laugh amidst some of the most horrible things in life, it's difficult to get through. I mean, I'm a part of a family to get a little personal. I've lost multiple members of my family to horrible cancer. And I remember when I lost both of my grandparents to cancer very early on in life that my brother and I, the way we survived was through making light of things and laughing and joking amidst really terrible things because if you can't laugh and you can't make light of horrible circumstances in life then it's it, the world is just going to beat the shit out of you and so i think so many directors use comedy amidst dark subject matter because it's the way themselves that they survive they're telling these stories and telling you this is how i made it through and i love that films like this are made um, i i and i love that art reminds us that even through these hardships, it's okay to laugh and it's okay to try to cope in ways that won't make you just go insane. Absolutely. So, Ray, to move on from this, we're going into our top two. I have a feeling that there's going to be some crossover in our top two. And if it turns out the way that I think it's going to turn out, we'll just cross over the conversation. So hit me with your number two. So a little disclaimer, my number one and number two pick change every like five minutes same feel like i could move one and the other so the only reason why i'm gonna rank this one as number two is because i've only seen this movie once versus the other one i've already seen a couple of times so my number two movie is everything everywhere all at once wow ray my number two pick is everything everywhere all at once (laughs) so we and the only the, the only reason is because i only saw this movie in theaters that's it well, my number one pick, I have already seen in theaters and seen it multiple times at home. Well, and the only reason my number one pick is my number one pick is because I'm a huge fanboy, which obviously you're in the same camp as me, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be able to guess relatively easily what our number <laughs> one is. I, it's difficult for me because Everything Everywhere All at Once is the most unique and original film of the year, and nothing will be more unique and original than this on any other year if a a certain someone didn't release a film this would be easily number one but i can say ray and i'm i'm sure you'll accent me on this one this is one of the greatest movies ever made ever i don't ever. know how anyone can think otherwise i i can't remember the last time i went to a movie theater and watched a film that made me feel like i was like 12 or 13 at the movies again like that excited about seeing what was going on on screen and this is a vision from the Daniels, who I think are just two incredibly talented individuals where uh, we're going to talk really lengthy about everything everywhere all at once. But if you haven't seen Swiss Army Man, go watch that fucking movie because I feel like a lot of people overlooked it 
and it's also a work of art. It's such like a unique and beautiful story. And Ray, I'm sure we'll talk about this more at length, but what I love so much about this film is yes, it's an overblown premise. There's ridiculous comedy, but it is truly one of the most beautiful human stories I've ever seen. I remember when I saw this movie, I actually almost didn't see this movie. I was kind of tight with money, that paycheck. I'm like, I'll just have to wait till it's out for me to rent. And then I was gifted, you know, a a gift card for my local cinema. I'm like, well, that was a sign. I have to go see it. And I remember sitting there watching the movie and thinking this is hilarious. I'm laughing out loud, not just chuckling, but like laughing out loud. And the whole theater is in an uproar. And when you find out like the, the actual true message behind it, it was almost like emotional. Like, oh, it, it got really emotional and really sweet very quickly. I feel like we talk about horror a lot where we're like, yeah, it got dark super fast and it got gritty super fast. But this one got really emotional and lovely very fast and once it did the emotional connection that you were having with these characters you know whether it be that you're looking at uh, the lens of a parent with a child or us looking through the lens of how our parents are and this dichotomy between relationships is just beautiful to look at while still having plenty of action and comedy throughout the entire thing. Everybody in the world was talking about Michelle Yeoh's performance, and I think that she was incredible, but I would be remiss if I did not mention Kei-Hui Kwan, who I think gives the definitive Oscar-worthy performance for supporting actor this year. He stole the show. If he does not get a nomination, then I will realize how the Academy is rigged because that is the most versatile and amazing performance. The fact that the man has not performed since his young years when he was in like the Goonies and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And he comes back and just gives like, he's hilarious. He has not missed a beat with the bodily comedy with just like everything that made him so enamoring when he was a young kid and so great in these movies. But oh my God, he's a phenomenal dramatic actor. Like I, I just could not get over any time he was on screen my jaw was on the floor. And I, I just felt like this thing where he's playing, he's kind of the goofy, unaware husband who also loves his wife so much that he's doing everything he can to make sure that she's being taken care of. But then when he shifts and he's this confident, um, like almost action hero, and the two personalities, it's very clearly obvious when he's playing one and the other. And that was just so impressive to me. The all the different things that it touches on, like, you know, the the subject of your daughter having a lifestyle that a parent that's maybe a little bit more old fashioned wouldn't be accepting of or a parent that's trying to come to terms with. I don't want to get too into the plot because I personally feel like this is a movie you watch blind, but just little little nuances like that. Also, yes, all of those actors are phenomenal and I can't get enough of them. But Jamie freaking Lee Curtis when her head smashed through that wall, man. I I don't think I've laughed that hard at a movie theater in a long time. She did, she really gave a phenomenal performance and she was, Jamie Lee Curtis has such a unique face so it's hard not to like pinpoint her but they did a really good job with the makeup for her in that movie. She looked like a whole different person. Yeah, well and she is, you know, 
Jamie Lee Curtis is not like a washed out actress like she keeps in good shape she is probably far more active than i am they made her look like this disheveled old lady and she is funny but she's also she also has some really emotional cues throughout the movie i i don't know it was everyone in that it's a perfect movie like i said the only reason why this movie probably isn't higher is because i've only seen it once since theaters versus the other one well and i think what's funny about it too is that you look at daniels and like you could see all of the films that this pulls from and i think it's funny that you can look and be like oh this has references to ratatouille but it also has references to wong kor wise in the mood for love which is like a a a classic and a beautiful romance and it's like they pulled from so many unique pieces of cinema meshed it together to create this world which like who even cares about doctor strange at this point this is the multiverse movie that everybody needs also the fact that the daniels once again used such ridiculous such a ridiculous cue to convey such a powerful message. I mean, again, not to get too spoilery, but like there's the usage of rocks and googly eyes and raccoons and bagels. And the fact that they were able to use these ridiculous tropes throughout a movie to convey such a strong and powerful message is, you know, commendable for sure. So that was Ray and I's number two pick, which means our number one pick is going to be exactly the same. And our number one pick is Robert Eggers, the Northman. <laughs> Yeah, you didn't see that coming, did you? No, nobody in our audience would have ever guessed that that would have been our number one film. And what's funny is, and Ray, I think that you said it really well, like these two movies are interchangeable. It's really difficult with both of us being Robert Eggers fanboys to not like kind of prioritize the Northman because of how much we love his style and the way that he makes movies. Uh, As far as like originality, Everything Everywhere All at Once has this beat by Miles. There's something about the way Robert Eggers makes a film, the period accuracy, the performances that he gets from his actors, the cinematography, the environment, that really, like, this is going to be a movie I watch a thousand times. This is most accessible film of the trilogy so far. You know, I, I feel like when you say accessible, you think, oh, he made, like, a blockbuster movie no it's still pretty art housey i would be but i would be more comfortable sharing the northman over the lighthouse with like my friends that are aren't as into the art house aspect of things well and that's why it didn't make its budget back unfortunately because as, as much as people wanted to think like hey this is a gladiator it's not i mean it's not like it's not big budget schlock it's an art house movie it is a 70 million dollar robert eggers art house film and the thing is it does have its accessible moments but it's still like eggers other films it's very quiet it's refined it's also brutal and it's intense but it's a character study above above all things that uses a very simplistic Shakespearean style story, but uses that as like the backdrop to really build this world and make it so immersive. And also to study the lore and the history of this culture, which is what makes it such a great film. The fact that he went for very, even the music, the score, once again, this, I, surprise, Ray talking about the score again. The score that they use, you know, all the percussion instruments and the chanting, very Viking-esque like ready for battle type music it was incredible and it compliments again once again you know that's something that stood out more to me on the northman than on the other ones because i feel like on the witch and the lighthouse the score is great but it's just there to like amp the 
the mood of the movie, but for the Northman, the score almost feels like its own character as well. The sound design in all of Robert Eggers' movies are is so pivotal. Like The Witch, if you really pay attention and you have a really good sound system at home, the amount of time and effort that the Mark Corvin score to that movie has to where there's like animal noises and ambient sounds and laughing and all of these things intermingled in with the music that kind of create this unsettling atmosphere. Same with the lighthouse where you have that like foghorn that's constantly blaring amidst all of this weird sound design. The Northman has that in droves as well where you have this very accurate to the time period music that would accompany this film amidst that really ethereal and strange sound and i think robert eggers the devil is in the details for him every single piece of the movie has to work together perfectly really between the cinematography and the performances and the score you're so immersed into this world that like i could have watched a five-hour version of this and i do want to say as much as ray and i are uh anya taylor joy fanboys and we love her to death and we're both like obsessed with everything that she makes i would be remiss if i did not mention the career best performance from alexander skarsgård who he was dude was jack i love that they used him specifically i remember being so excited when he got casted because i remember seeing his other movies like tarzan and uh, you know where he got really jacked for those movies and then i thought the northman we're gonna see the biggest scars guard we have ever seen and he delivered not, not just the shape that he got himself in but also like the way he walks and the way how he like he emulates that very animal like um battle spirit that he has where he just is relentless and brutal and ah alexander skarsgård yeah he was the very very best pick for that film and you know he's swedish so he's the perfect viking and it's funny too because i watched a really long behind the scenes footage about this and i guess this is a movie that skarsgård has wanted to make for a really long time he's always wanted to do like a viking story and it's like you said ray i'm just gonna accent you but he was a perfect choice for the role and we could gush about anya taylor joy for an eternity she was amazing in this movie but like it's all about the little details too like willem dafoe for what he's in this amazing ethan hawk who was incredible in this movie like absolutely incredible and the only person that really took me out of this was nicole kidman also nicole kidman is such a household name now that that like you see nicole kidman and it's like it's like what you know it's like if you see all of a sudden if you saw a tom hanks in one of these art house movies like i freaking adore tom hanks but he's such a household name that sometimes it's hard to separate the name tom hanks or in this case nicole kidman from the grand scheme of things everybody in the movie does a really great job and that's like willem dafoe and ethan hawk even though they're household names and they they've done a lot i feel like they're so disguised under the guise of makeup and everything that it's easy to suspend your disbelief compared to a nicole kidman who's like an icon and that you see before every film at amc <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it at AMC, but I imagine that must have been weird. It's like, hey, I just saw you five minutes ago. Oh, I saw it at AMC and I was like, wow, this is really strange. Uh, but yeah, Ray and I could gush about this movie for a fucking eternity, but it is our favorite film of the year. And I've said my my two cents on it. Ray, do you have any final thoughts on that one? Um, Just the last thing I want to add, because um, I picked this up on Blu-ray the day it came out and I've I've watched it. And I've multiple times and I've watched the crap out of the special features and 
was something that Eggers made mention, and this is something admirable, and I, I don't think it gets a lot of um, mention too often, is when Eggers films a movie, he's actually at these settings, he's actually in that environment. So to, you know, it's kind of cool to know that like Skarsgård and Anya Taylor-Joy and Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman, like they were there in that grimy weather and they were there like covered in mud and covered in crap and... I guess they, because they had a bigger budget, they offered some of them, you know, body doubles to do some of those more grimy scenes. And they were like, no, we're in this the whole time. That's awesome. And I love to hear that because that's like, uh, I remember seeing an interview when The Lighthouse came out uh, with Willem Dafoe. Dafoe was like, hey, I went to the theater and I saw The Witch. And I, as soon as I watched it, I was like, I want to work with Robert Eggers when he worked on The Lighthouse him and Pattinson talked about how it was one of the most miserable experiences of their life as far as like dealing with the weather and being in that environment, but how like it also pushed their boundaries as an actor to kind of give the best performances that they possibly could give and that they would do it again in a heartbeat. And so I think that whole nature of like them getting down and dirty and getting in the grossness of it all really elevates how the film feels to you as the viewer. And also, I hope I don't break your heart, Nate because it, it broke my heart a little bit. This film was not shot in Iceland because it was too expensive. So they actually shot it in Northern Ireland. But the setting is still gorgeous. That countryside is just beautiful to look at. If for anything else, this movie is beautiful to look at. And also, Eggers is not going to sacrifice quality. So even if he can't film where he wants, he's going to make sure wherever he films is pretty damn accurate. So that was Ray and I's top five movies of the year. We knew we were going to have a little bit of crossover. But Ray, I'm really happy with the other films that you chose because it added some stuff onto my list to watch. Same, same. I'm actually excited about all three that you spoke, particularly Duel. That sounds the most fascinating to me, but I'm excited to check all of them out. Yes, I can't wait for you to see them, and I'm excited to hear your opinion. And, you know, we were talking about being Anya Taylor-Joy fanboys, which we really are, uh, and that leads us into our questions for the week. And our questions for the week, I'm going to split them off into two, but they're kind of in similar subject matter, which, Ray, the first one we're going to talk about is... Who are your top three actors? They can be currently working. They can be dead. It doesn't matter. Who are your top three actors? I'll let you go first. I think I have them down, but I'll let you go first. I would say one of my main picks, uh, rest in peace, is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who uh, is in one of my favorite films of all time, Synecdoche, New York. I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman. I feel like he was one of the most versatile actors to ever live, just like... He's one of those people, and when I pick favorite actors and actresses, I'm always looking for someone who it really captivates me to the screen and like I never want to look away from. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of those people that whenever he's in a movie, even if you look at something like Punch Drunk Love that he wasn't like the central focus of, anytime he was on the screen, he pulled me in to where I never wanted to quit watching. So Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my three. Um, for one of my three, I just talked about... Um... And this is an actor that, for me, any time that he works, even if the movie doesn't deliver, he will always deliver. And that is my boy, Nicolas Cage. I just love Nicolas Cage and everything that man does. Even in bad movies, he still remains great. Just to name a few, just and it's this renaissance he's had recently between Mandy, 
Pig, Prisoners of the Ghostland, Willy's Wonderland, The Color Out of Space, and now The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. This, like, renaissance he's having makes me so happy because I feel like he's such a misunderstood actor and everybody thinks he's just insane, and he may very well be, but to be quite honest, from interactions that I've seen that he's had online, he is actually a really pleasant guy. He's just, he loves his craft and he's very serious about it, but, you know, he doesn't like to hold back, which I think that's why being in these independent films nowadays are doing so much positive um, moves for his career. And I love how uncompromising he is. I remember, I think it was when Unbearable Weight came out right around that time. He was doing a bunch of press interviews and someone was really like hounding him about uh, doing all those VOD movies that he did for a while where like he was constantly releasing these straight to like red box movies. And he had a quote, which I don't have it exactly, but he was like, I don't regret anything I've ever made. I'm confident in everything I've made as an actor. And even if the movie wasn't good, my performance was exactly how I would want it to be. And I really commend him for that. That takes a lot to say as an actor. One of those VOD movies was the trust that he did with Elijah Wood. And I mean, sometimes sometimes some of those VOD movies are actually legitimately great. You just have to. That's why, that's why I enjoy watching his movies because, yeah, like he gets crap for a lot of like junk that he's made. But at the same time, it's like there's a fair amount of great movies that he's made that people aren't seeing because of this dumb reputation that Hollywood has put on him. Absolutely. So that'll lead my into my uh, my next pick, uh, which we just talked about The Northman, but Willem Dafoe is one of my favorite actors in all of Hollywood. I feel like his catalog is incredibly versatile, and he really is a transformative actor. I mean, you look at something like The Northman, where he's like in all this crazy makeup, and he's delivering these monologues in such an amazing way. My favorite performance from him is The Lighthouse, but I look at something like Antichrist, where he's just playing like a husband who went through a really tragic loss or the Florida project where he's this manager of this hotel and he's trying to make sure that these kids living in these lower income situations are taken care of. And you, you really can adapt in any movie that Willem Dafoe is in and just kind of feel the incredible commitment to the performance that he gives. And he truly just seems like a wonderful human being. So Willem Dafoe is next on my list. I love Dafoe. That's all at. I, I love Defoe. We're not worthy of Willem Defoe. Oh, and I hope that he makes movies until he's very old because he's just amazing. And Robert Eggers, keep casting the man. I hope that you make him Nosferatu in that movie you're playing. So for my next pick, um, I love this actor. I've always enjoyed everything he's made. I think he he actually cares about the craft and it's a very thoughtful person. And that that actor is Viggo Mortensen. I love Viggo. I really do. Vigo is so great. Vigo yeah. is so great. Everything he does is great. He was great on Crimes of the Future, but, you know, one of my favorite movies that he's done was Captain Fantastic, which, pun intended, he had a fantastic performance. Obviously, the Lord of the Ring movies. But then also, like, some of his lesser-known movies, you know, like I was mentioning Captain Fantastic. I know people, like, cringe when they hear Green Book, but he legitimately gave a great performance on Green Book. You know, sometimes people forget that just, like we was talking about with with Cage, just because you didn't enjoy the movie, you can't deny that some of these actors working are really putting their all on the line and giving some incredible performances. So I love Eagle Mortensen. So Ray, I'm wondering if our number one's going to be a crossover. No. (laughs) 
Is there is there a chance that your number one is a man by the name of Joaquin Phoenix? There is a chance that Joaquin Phoenix is. My <laughs> jo- Joaquin Phoenix is my number one pick. I feel like Joaquin is like the Daniel Day Lewis of our generation, uh, where I Daniel Day barely made it off my list. I think that he is just an incredible actor, but like he's someone everyone talks about. But Joaquin is truly like one of the most transformative actors I've ever seen. I mean, you even look at a film like Joker, which, you know, I'm, I've talked to Ray about it before. I'm not a huge Joker fan by any means. Like I, I, but the amount of time and effort that went into his transformative performance and what he did for that film, you look at a movie like the master, the Paul Thomas Anderson film that he lost all that weight for. I mean, the man really just completely transforms not only his, his persona, but his body and his image to get in these roles. And that's really commendable there's also a sense of like he is another it sounds like he's kind of a complicated person to work with because of his personality but i also think that it's his personality what makes him such a just brutal and when i say brutal i mean just like the emotions and the work he puts into his roles i think it stems from that problematic personality he has and something i love about joaquin and this is more of like just a personal thing as you know i myself am very big on animal rights i i don't i'm vegetarian i don't eat meat and i try to abstain from animal products as much as i can um so the fact that he's a voice and he uses his platform to advocate for animal rights it's very near and dear to my heart so that's another reason why i love him just not because acting but also what he's doing with his platform and how real he can be i mean he was a big advocate for uh, the Academy to do all plant-based meals at their, at their gathering that year. And he's just, he uses his platform for something I'm really passionate about, which is animal rights. So that's another reason why I just, I adore the man. And it really, it makes a lot of sense that he uses his platform for such a good cause because seeing as how his childhood, you know, him and his brother uh, were a member of that cult of whatever and they got out of there and who knows what their childhood was like and the amount of abuse and trauma that they've went through and I know that he's a very outspoken advocate against that organization and what happened I mean what happened to River Phoenix is like the most tragic thing in the world but uh yeah uh, Joaquin really does use his platform for a lot of great causes and it's I will always support the man even if he's a little wild so we move on on to the next segment so yeah, our next question, which is a little uh, uh, just piggybacking off of that, which is we're going to talk about our top three actresses now. And Ray, do you want me to start or do you want to start? We have a crossover. So should we hit the crossover real quick and then move on to to the other ones? Sure. We're Andy Taylor Joy fanboys. What what else can we say? It, yeah. <laughs> well, and the thing, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna nail this in the head. It. It's not even for any, because I've had people ask me, it's like, why, why do you like her so much? And honestly, I respect her craft. I respect what he does. I feel like she's very good about picking some compelling stories. And something I will always admire about her is that she is definitely picking roles. You can tell she's putting thought on the role she's picking. She's not just picking like, oh, I'm going to start in the next fill in the blank blockbuster of the year she is actually working on films like we were talking about earlier that are unique and telling great stories all around yeah like when she was in the playmobile movie 
you got you, you just had to throw that in my face right <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no. But she, I agree. I I agree with you. I but the thing with Anya Taylor Joy is for me is that like there are certain actors and actresses who when you watch a movie that you like there's something about their personality and their charisma that you just can't look away from the screen. And she's one of those people that like it does not matter what movie or role that she's in, she is going to steal the the screen. She's going to eat up every ounce of the frame. You're going to constantly want to watch everything that she does because she's so committed to these performances. Even like a movie I watched, which I'm sure was a movie you ran to the theater to see Ray, which was Emma, which was the Jane Austen film. She was so incredible in that movie and just like transformative and amazing. And she's somebody who I'm going to continue to watch. I think that she's just a fantastically talented human being. And uh, she is my favorite actress right now. Uh, and that's not going to change. So now I'm excited to hear some of your other picks, Ray. Give me another one. <laughs> so the the other one, um, I think I think I have, it's just the Lord of the Rings nerd in me because I adore Kate Blanchett and everything that woman does. You know, it's funny, I recently watched Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, and she was one of my favorite parts of that film. Uh, I feel like she's a really captivating actress who has given us some really great performances uh, over the span of her career, and she's really another one of those actresses that I would say is transformative. She really does uh, give just an amazing, committed performance in everything that she's in. And she's just so... She just seems like the classiest woman ever like she just i don't know i feel like with her there's this aura about her that she is really classy and really thoughtful and really puts a lot of care into her roles even if she's doing like an oceans you know like more of a fun oceans movie like there's still you can tell she's taking it seriously she's not just picking up a free paycheck like she's really putting thought into what she's doing yeah, so uh, speaking of uh, classy and uh, incredible actresses, my next pick is Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I think Tilda is one of the best actresses of our generation. I think that she, it does not matter what she's in, she's so fucking committed. I recently watched uh, the Jim Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive, that she played a vampire in. But like my favorite Tilda Swinton performance is the uh, 2018 Suspiria remake, which I've gushed about not only on my YouTube channel, but I've mentioned on this podcast a few times where she plays like three different roles in the same movie and she is so amazing and transformative that I did not even realize that it was her until like a quarter of the way through the movie and one of the roles that she was in she's just a really incredibly talented performer and I love that she's so uniquely her and that she's uncompromising and like not just like her performances but like her fashion sense the way that she presents herself and it's really commendable and I really love her every time she shows up in anything I, I love even like the literal roles she does in Wes Anderson movies she's just such a fucking cool human being and uh yeah I really love Tilda Swinton she is just it doesn't matter what she does Tilda's amazing I could rant about it for forever but I'm ready to hear your last pick Ray hit me so this one I was kind of struggling because I couldn't narrow it down so I just kind of out of the list that I had I just pointed my finger and I'm glad that it landed on the very talented Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand is a chameleon. She can turn herself into any role. She can give some of the most emotional and just heart-wrenching performances. I mean, her performance 
on three billboards outside of Enving, Missouri is it makes my skin crawl in some of those scenes. And she she's also much like Joaquin, somebody that is outspoken about what she's passionate about. She doesn't try to glamorize herself at these red carpet events. She tries to make it about the things that she believe in, um, furthering women and, you know, hiring and more equal opportunities for women in film. Frances McDormand is great. She's also an incredible voice actress, like on the Isle of Dog movies. She always gives a great performance, and she's always a standout, even if she has a very minimal role in the movie. I agree completely. And she's, like, my favorite Frances McDormand performance ever is Fargo. I don't think that'll ever change. But she is continuing to grow as an actress. And that's great. Like, like uh, I don't know if you saw it last year, Ray, but The Tragedy of Macbeth, her performance was absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm not a Shakespeare person at all. I really get kind of annoyed with Old English, but her performance was so captivating and beautiful. The perfect mix of old Hollywood and, like, new new ideals in Hollywood where you can feel that sort of, like, classic... 19, 1940s, 1950s actress mixed with like newer age where she can do dramatic, she can do stage performance, but she can also do camp like the Coen brothers burn after reading where she does like a really over the top and insane performance. So I'm a big Francis McDormand fan as well. I'll just quickly mention my third one, which I know people are like, oh my God, you're just a fanboy, but I love Florence Pugh. Uh, I feel like Florence Pugh is another up and comer like Anya Taylor-Joy. Everything I've seen her in, even if it's a crappy movie, she gives an amazing performance. And she is someone else who uses her platform to speak out on a lot of really great issues. She's someone who's clearly involved. And I love watching her little cooking videos on Instagram. She's like the most adorable human being in the world. And honestly, I'm super excited for this Don't Worry Darling movie. I'm hoping that it's amazing. I, I am a little hesitant about the fact that Harry Styles is cast as a lead. I'm hoping that he's really talented. But like, yeah, I'll watch anything Florence Pugh's in. I love her a lot. You know what? Don't, don't, don't get so nervous about Harry Styles. I mean, if you would have told me in, you know, back in 2005 that Robert Pattinson was going to be one of my favorite actors now. I would have laughed in your face. Exactly. Uh, that's my hope. My hope is that that's the same, is that he's he's transformative. Well, that was Ray and I's top three actors, top three actresses. And yeah, I'm glad I got to hear your favorites, Ray. Uh, we've got some crossover, obviously, because uh, we're both Joaquin Phoenix and Anya Taylor-Joy fanboys, but it's fine. I, I will happy, I'll happily stand on that pedestal and say I love these two uh, with my whole heart. But yeah, that was fun. And thank you for your uh, top five picks, Ray. I thought they were really great. I had a lot of fun with this episode. Yeah, this was super fun. Even just um, revisiting some of these in preparation. This is something I always love about it is when we talked about these lists, being able to go back and rewatch some of these and be like, yeah, I remember. That's why. That's why I had so much love for this movie to begin. Absolutely. And that's my favorite part about making this podcast. And that leads me into our next week's episode, which Ray and I, uh, I discussed this with Ray and Ray was like, yeah, this is a cool idea. We're going to talk about our top five favorite psychological thrillers. So we're going to get all in your brains and get you paranoid about the killer next door ray and i are really excited we're we're doing we're picking these episodes and like i've said before uh if you guys have a, a, an idea for an episode something you want us to talk about 
by all means reach out to us i plug this every episode but you can reach out to us on our instagram at the real monsters podcast on twitter at the real monsters pod or you can find ray and i's personal instagrams ray at analog c and me at my exit unfair do not hesitate to direct message us comment on our posts whatever you want to do uh ask us questions for the next week's episode you can recommend uh episode ideas ray and i would love to hear from you yes please reach out we are gonna say this in every episode and continue to because the interactions that we've had have been so awesome and we just want more of it so on that note thanks everybody for listening to another episode of the real monsters podcast we're looking forward to getting a new episode out for you next week and as always we will see you next time and as ray said once stay scared boom